You're listening to the Redeeming Grace Church podcast. For more information about our church, go to rgcrc.org. All right, if you would like to find a Bible nearby, we're going to be in Genesis chapter 45 through 47. We're going to do a big chunk today. Um, in the, if you don't have a Bible with you, no problem. We have some Bibles under the chairs. And the, in the brown Bibles, it's page 38. And in the red Bibles, it's page 47. And uh, just to help you out with the Bible, uh, Genesis, uh, the Bible is broken up into 66 different books. Genesis is the first one. And then whenever we say two numbers, like if we say Genesis 45, 4, then 45 is the big number that you see in there, and then one is the little one. It's just a way to triangulate and be able to find exactly the sentence that you're looking for. So we're going to be in Genesis, the first book of the Bible, and then big number 45, and we're going to walk through those through a few chapters together. Uh, If you are newer with us, then we just need to let you know that we have been on a long journey through this first book of the Bible. It's 50 chapters. It's something like 1,400 or 1,500 verses. And it's a story. It's the story of everything. It's the beginning of everything. And, uh, and this is a little bit like, as we get into chapters 45 through 47, it's a little bit like watching, jumping in on the last 45 minutes of movie three of The Lord of the Rings. You're like, why are they gathered at the gate of Mordor? And what are these two little guys climbing a volcano for? But that's okay. We'll get you caught up and we'll uh, jump in. But just know that... Um, We've been on a long, epic story together. You can catch the previous messages at rgcrc.org or on our podcast or on YouTube. You can find those if you want to get some of the backstory. But um, where we left things last week was Joseph's brothers have come down now for a second time to Egypt to get food. Joseph is the brother that they sold into slavery, and by a miraculous set of circumstances, God has brought him to second in command in Egypt. And because of some dreams about seven years of plenty and seven years of famine, Joseph has strategically positioned Egypt to be essentially the food provider of the whole world. Uh, They have all of these storehouses of food because God had revealed to Joseph what he was about to do, and so they were prepared for famine, and the whole world, it says, is coming to Egypt to get food because the famine is so severe in all of the world. So now Joseph's brothers are coming back to him, and we have this encounter. After 21 years since they last, uh, first they were going to kill him, and then they decided to sell him into slavery. Now there's this reunion, and, uh, and we're about to see what happens. We left it off with Judah's beautiful speech, because Benjamin is found with Joseph's cup. It, Joseph set it up in such a way that it looks like Benjamin stole it. He chases him down, and they're about to, he's about to put Benjamin Uh, their father's uh, favored child, uh, into bondage, and Joseph appeals. Joseph intercedes on behalf of his brother and Judah, I should say. Judah uh, just shows such a change of heart from who he was before. It is such a Christ-like picture of self-sacrifice and self-substitution, and he's staring his brother in the face unknowingly, um, offering himself. The brother who sold him into slavery has now had such a change of heart And here we see, we just left it there. We just left it hanging on the cliffhanger. What is Joseph going to do? Is he going to bring vengeance on his brothers for the wrongs that are done to him? Or is he going to respond to Judah's plea for mercy and actually extend extend grace to all of them? As we remember Judah's speech, one commentator put it this way. He says, it is perhaps one of the most tender, affecting pieces of natural oratory ever spoken or penned. 
Indeed, the whole speech is exquisitely beautiful, and perhaps the most complete pattern of genuine natural eloquence extant in any language. When we read this generous speech, we forgive Judah all his past. And so now we have Judah, the functional firstborn of the family, facing Joseph, the favored son of the family. And we wonder, is the promise of God to this family going to continue, or is it going to come apart at the seams right here? What will Joseph do? And we're going to see uh, that the title of this message is Reconciliation, Relocation, and Riches. That really frames up these three chapters. Um, Reconciliation among the family. Spoiler alert, Joseph does reconcile with his brothers. A relocation of the family from the land of Canaan, the land that they were promised to enter. Uh, They're going to relocate to Egypt. And then riches, we're going to see them flourish. We're going to see them multiply and flourish while the rest of the world and even Egypt itself struggles through famine. God's people are going to to flourish. Uh, It's broken down into five parts, so we're going to look at each of these five parts uh, one at a time. Verses 1 through 15 of chapter 40, uh, 45, we're going to see a family reconciliation. We're going to see all that has been broken apart because of sin and jealousy and favoritism is going to be put back together. 21 years of family uh, dysfunction is going to be healed in these 15 verses. Then we're going to see Pharaoh blessing Joseph. Joseph hears about this reunion that's about to take place and just lavishes blessing on Joseph and his family. Then we see a family relocation takes about a chapter to describe that and all of the people. We've got a bunch of crazy names to look at again today. Then we see Jacob blessing Pharaoh, which is an intriguing kind of turn of events, and then ultimately family riches. This is what is called, uh, Hebrew is often structured in chiasm, where the first and the last kind of match, then the middle two match, and then the center point. So you see kind of this up the mountain, down the mountain. You see this symmetry in the passage. That's why we're taking such a big chunk is because narratively, The Hebrew is structured in such a way to give this beautiful picture of this chapter, this chapter in Israel's history. And the main point is that God is going to move his people out of the land of Canaan temporarily for their preservation, for their safety. It's not going to be easy. It's going to be hard, but it's got part of God's plan that he revealed to Abraham back a hundred years earlier. So with that said, let me open us up in prayer, and then we're going to start plowing our way through a good chunk of scripture. God, thank you for your word. Thank you for this story. Thank you that you care about individual people. And as we look at the dialogue and conversations that have been preserved for thousands of years and even on into eternity as your word, uh, God, we thank you for your grace in that, that you communicate your story, you communicate your truths, you communicate your character and your saving plan through stories like this, through people like us. So God, I pray that we would um, allow our... Um, concerns and of our life fade in the background for just a little bit and enter into the story that you are telling through Joseph and his brothers. And may we marvel at your handiwork and your plan uh, through broken, dysfunctional people to bring about redemption of sinners and ultimately to bring forth Jesus Christ as, uh, as the Savior of the whole world. So God, we just marvel at this big story. Help us to uh, focus in and glean what we need to glean from these few chapters. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, let's look at family reconciliation. Uh, Genesis 45, 1 through 15. Let's read it. Then Joseph could not control himself before all those who stood by him. He cried, make everyone go out from me. So no one stayed with him when Joseph made himself known to his brothers, and he wept aloud, so that the Egyptians heard it and the household of Pharaoh heard it. 
And Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Imagine hearing that. I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? But his brothers could not answer him, for they were dismayed at his presence. So Joseph said to his brothers, come near to me, please. And they came near. And he said, I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here, for God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years, and there are still five years yet in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. And God sent me before you to preserve you, for you, to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. He has made me father to Pharaoh and lord of all his house and ruler over all the land of Egypt. Hurry up and go to my father and say to him, Thus says your son Joseph, God has made me lord of all Egypt. Come down to me, do not tarry. You shall dwell in the land of Goshen and you shall be near me you and your children and your children's children and your flocks, your herds, and all that you have. There I will provide for you, for there have yet five years of famine to come, so that you and your household and all that you have do not come to poverty. And now your eyes see, and the eyes of my brother Benjamin see, that it is my mouth that speaks to you. You must tell my father to, of all my honor in Egypt, and of all that you have seen. Hurry and bring my father down here. Then he fell upon his brother Benjamin's neck and wept, and Benjamin wept upon his neck. And he kissed all his brothers and wept among them. After that, his brothers talked with him. What an amazing turn here. What an amazing turn in the story where now Joseph is so overcome by the plea of his brother Judah. If God can change the heart of Judah, God can change the heart of anyone. And now he responds in kind. He makes all of the Egyptians go out because this is a private family matter here. But he's so dramatic and he's so emotional that even Pharaoh's house hears it, because this is such a, a flood of emotion for Joseph, such a, such a flood of compassion, such a, a flood of, 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 of gratitude to God. And, and listen, like his very first plea is for them not to be too hard on themselves. Like he's concerned about their well-being, right? He's concerned about them, for them not to be afraid. We might ask the question here as we just look at, like, just notice how many times Joseph uses the word God. When he thinks about all that his brothers did to him, it ultimately was God's hand in all of it. All of that sin, all of that brokenness, all of that selfishness, all of that rivalry, all of those intentions were orchestrated and redeemed and used by God. So we might ask, why was Joseph in Egypt? Was it because the sin of his brothers? Yes. Or was it because of the good plan of God? Even bigger yes. Ultimate yes. Sure, the brothers' sin was the lower level cause of this, and they're responsible for that. But on a higher level, God's ordaining, predestinating power and plan brought this together. Joseph sees God's hand in all this, and he wants them to see God's hand in this. You didn't send me here. You're just not that powerful. God sent me here through you, even through your sin. God sent me here. Joseph has the power to forgive his brothers because he embraces the hand of God in his life. He can forgive because he can, 
He can, he can take that desire for vengeance and revenge and all of that, and he can cast that up to God. That God was doing things in this. So he can reconcile and forgive his brother because he sees God's hand in this whole thing. I want you to see three principles illustrated in Joseph's statement. Number one, God's absolute control over all creatures and events. God sent me here. Number two, sinners are encouraged to hope in God's mercy. Do not be hard with yourselves. Accept the mercy that I'm sending you, that I'm extending to you, as God's mercy. Yet, there is no excuse for sin. Sinners are encouraged to hope in mercy without excuse for sin. That's number two. Number three, God orders all human affairs to the preservation of his sacred family. The whole point of this was for me to save you. You sinned against me, but God used that to position me to be able to save you. God turned this around. He used what was evil for good. This sounds like Romans 8. God works all things for good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. God has such a commitment to his covenant family that he even works the sin for good. He even works the injustices and bends them back in on themselves and turns them and flips them. One commentator put this speech in this way. The appeal meant this, I love and forgive you. That's what his brother was saying. This was what Joseph is saying to his brothers. I love and forgive you. Love and trust me. Trust and love in return. And after that, his brethren talked with him. Remember earlier, they were so jealous of him because of the coat that they couldn't even speak with him. Well, Moses is bringing that back around, that now, 21 years later, because of grace and mercy and forgiveness and reconciliation, there's now relationship. They now can talk to each other about things. It would have been fascinating to know what they talked about, wouldn't it? Just some of the things that have been going on in the life of the family, the way they were catching up with each other, like all of that animosity, all that stuff had been dealt with. It had been cast up to God. All of their burdens were cast on God, so now they could extend love and forgiveness to each other. The commentator goes on to say this, the struggle had been a hard one, but love had ultimately conquered. It matters little what they talked about, the wonders of Egypt, the storehouses, the capabilities of Goshen, the sons of Joseph, the state of the flocks at home, the children of each of the brothers, their father, the dreams. Can you imagine them coming to the dreams? That yes, his father and mother and brothers are all going to bow down to him, just like the dream predicted. God, was, God had his hand in this all along. The great thing was that they all talked. Brother talked to brother, heart to heart. So you see that last little verse that looks like kind of a throwaway as an evidence that they, now there's relationship because of forgiveness and mercy that came from a high view of God, a God who is big enough to work these things for good, to turn these things around. And I think that's what has sustained Joseph all along, is that God is with him, and God is hand, God's hand has been in every bit of this. Whether that's the purchasing of Potiphar, purchasing him, the temptations of Potiphar's wife, the slave or, or, or the prison master, all of that stuff has been God's hand. Joseph recognizes that, and now, as he seeks to reconcile it to his brothers, he wants to convince them of that. God has been at work. God has been at work. So we see a family reconciliation in, chapters 40, in chapter 45, verses 1 through 15. Next, we see Joseph or Pharaoh blesses Joseph. Look at 16 through 24. When the report was heard in Pharaoh's house, Joseph's brothers have come. It pleased Pharaoh and his servants. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, Say to your brothers, Do this, load 
up, load your beasts and go back to the land of Canaan. Take your father and your households and come to me. And I will give you the best of the land of Egypt and you shall eat the fat of the land. And you, Joseph, are commanded to say, do this. Take wagons from the land of Egypt for your little ones and for your wives and bring your fathers and come. Have no concern for your goods, for the best of all the land of Egypt is yours. The sons of Israel did so, and Joseph gave them wagons according to the command of Pharaoh and gave them provisions for the journey. To each and all of them he gave a change of clothes. But to Benjamin he gave 300 shekels of silver and five changes of clothes. To his father he sent as follows, ten donkeys loaded with the good things of Egypt and ten female donkeys loaded with grain, bread, and provision for his father on the journey. Then he sent his brothers away, and as they departed, he said to them, Do not quarrel on the way. So Pharaoh hears about this family reunion of these foreigners, and, uh, and he has such a regard for Joseph, and has such a regard for Joseph's leadership in the kingdom and the way that Joseph has been a blessing to Pharaoh, that Pharaoh decides, you know what, I'll just pay all the moving expenses for your family to come here. Just pack them all up. We'll send loading trucks. We'll send provisions. I'm going to pay for the whole thing. Pharaoh blesses Joseph and his family. The sons of Egypt receive transportation and provision, garments, riches, because of who their favored brother was. They received the blessing that their brother had earned. We get a little bit of a picture of the gospel in that, in that we get the blessings that we don't deserve because of our older brother, Jesus Christ, who earned a favor and a standing. And so they're receiving a blessing. They're receiving a blessing from Pharaoh himself to the sons of, uh, to the sons of Jacob. Boyce writes this, To return to Canaan with carts from Egypt was the cultural equivalent of landing a jumbo jet among the tribe of, an is- of isolated savages. <laughs> like this is just the best of the best brought to relocate this family. Pharaoh is sparing no expense in the middle of a famine to bring foreigners into, his, into the best of his land, all because of Joseph. And we have this little tagline at the end where Joseph tells them, do not quarrel on the way. So he still knows his brother's tendency, right? That though they've been forgiven, then they, though they've been changed, they still have a temptation. And I think there's a little bit of this. Like when they go back and tell their dad that Joseph's alive, guess what they're going to have to fess up to? They're going to have to fess up to the fact that he didn't die by an animal. They've been holding up that lie for 21 years, that he had been torn apart by an animal. Now they're going to go back, and they're going to go back just like with stuff hanging off of them and this huge entourage. Dad, we're moving because guess what? We lied to you a long time ago. We betrayed you. And not only is Joseph alive, but now he's in charge of all of us, and we're moving to go visit him. Like, so I think that's a little bit of Joseph going, hey, don't quarrel. Like, live in forgiveness. Live in grace. Live in the light. Don't quarrel on the way about who's going to say what. No more rivalry. No more favoritism. We're not going back to the old ways that our family used to operate. Do not quarrel on the way. As you go back and tell dad, be honest. Live in the light. Live in forgiveness. He will be happy about this. This is good news. And while the good news does contain some bad news, don't quarrel about this. Don't go, I didn't do it, <laughs> Reuben. Don't, don't play the blame game. Don't quarrel on the way. Just live in grace, live in the light, live in forgiveness. Bring the honest report to dad, and it'll, it's all going to work out. Trust me. 
We see then a family relocation, chapter 45, 25 through 46, 30. So, so there's some moving parts in here, so hang on with me. Verse 25, so they went up out of Egypt and came to the land of Canaan to their father Jacob. And they told him, Joseph is still alive, and he is ruler over all the land of Egypt. Now, that's the most absurd thing that you could imagine. If you think that your child has been dead for 21 years, and then you hear this, in fact, that's what happens to Jacob. Listen to this. And his heart became numb, for he did not believe them. But when they told him all the words of Joseph, which he had said to them, and when they saw the wagons that Joseph had sent to carry him, the spirit of their father of Jacob revived. So it almost killed him to even think. Like, how, what an awful thing to say to your dad if it's not true, right? What an awful thing to say to him. Like, he almost, because he doesn't believe them, go, you you can put me in a grave right now of heartbreak. Like, just twist the knife. But then they bring all of the stuff. And ironically, you, talk, you saw in the first section there that he gave them a bunch of coats. What did they use to trick their father with? What was the point of this whole thing was coats. So he's like, they've all got new coats. They've all got new garments. Benjamin's got new garments. Let's persuade you, father. Guess what, we, guess what he gave us? Coats. Garments. All the things we robbed from him and used to deceive you, he's replaced those. He's brought them back. When they told him the words of Joseph, that, which he had said to them, and when he saw the wagons that Joseph had sent to carry him, the spirit of, his father, of their father Jacob revived, and Israel said, it is enough. Joseph, my son, is still alive. I will go and see him before I die. What a deathbed. What a deathbed joy, right? Although he's not quite dead yet. Just imagine, the child you thought was dead for 21 years isn't. What that would do, and the resurrection news here. So Israel took his journey with all that he had and came to Beersheba and offered sacrifices to God, to the God of, the, of his father Isaac. And God spoke to Israel in visions of the night and said, Jacob, Jacob. And he said, here I am. Then he said, I am God. The God of your father, do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for there I will bring, I will make you into a great nation. I myself will go down with you to Egypt and will also bring you up again. And Joseph's hand shall close your eyes. What a sweet word from God. So they come to Beersheba. They're about to head out of the promised land. And the rule has always been stay in the promised land, right? Well, now they're about to leave. And I can imagine Jacob has some mixed feelings about this. Because the last time he left the promised land, he had to deal with Laban for quite a while. Like every time that the people of God have left, especially if they go to Egypt, because Abraham had a rough time in Egypt. He tried to give his wife away. God prevented Isaac from going down to Egypt. Egypt is a dangerous place. And so Jacob has these mixed feelings, these mixed feelings about going to see his son and relocating the whole family, but they are leaving the promised land. Will God be angry with them? Is this of God? It does seem to be of God, but it seems to be a step in the wrong direction. Isn't God supposed to give us this land? And yet we're leaving it. And so they stop at Beersheba. Beersheba is a really significant place of worship for Abraham in chapters 21 and 22. A significant place of worship for Isaac, chapter 26. And Jacob himself had been here before back in chapter 28. So this is a significant place as they're about to leave the promised land and go into Egypt, a significant place of worship, a place where his family has met with God, and he meets with God and worships God there. And God kindly, in a vision, tells him, it's okay. Yes, you're leaving the promised land, but this is actually part of the plan. This is for your good. 
Now, the people of God had been tempted already to begin to intermarry with Canaanites, so it's actually probably a good thing that God's going to remove them so that they can keep themselves uh, from intermarrying with the pagan and godless um, uh, Canaanites. Here's what Spurgeon says. It was, therefore, a memorable spot in the history of his family, and it was just then a turning point in his own career. And therefore, it called for a special waiting upon the Lord. He was about to break new ground and enter upon a way that had not been trodden before. And so we read that he offered sacrifices to God, to the God of his father, Isaac. So Jacob is looking for some reassurances from God that, yes, this looks like a step away from the fulfillment of the promises, but God comforts him. God appears to him, and God makes four promises to him. Look at these four promises. Number one, I will make a great nation of you there. This looks like a detour, but sometimes the fastest, the long way around is the fastest way home. That's an old proverb. The long way around is sometimes the fastest way home. This feels like the, the wrong direction. But God's like, no, this is the right direction. I have a plan in this. So I will make you a great nation there. Egypt won't destroy you. You'll thrive in Egypt. Number two, I will go with you. The greatest promise ever. God, I will be with you. God himself is not confined to the promised land. The other gods of ancient Near East, you were kind of, the gods were subject to the boundaries. And so God's like, no, I'm going to go with you. I'm going to be just as present with you in Egypt as you are here in the promised land. Number three, I will bring you back out. There will be an exodus out of that land as a great nation. And promise number four, your son will be with you when you die. Your son will be the one. The one that you thought was long dead is now going to be the one that buries you. What a high honor. What a great privilege. So God gives him authorization to leave the promised land, but seals it with four promises. Trust me here. I will make you a great nation. I will go with you. I will bring you back. And your son will be the one who buries you, your beloved son, Joseph. Let's look at verse 5. Then Joseph set out from Beersheba with the full confidence that God is in this. The sons of Israel carried Jacob, their father, their little ones, and their wives, and the wagons that Pharaoh had sent to carry him. And they also took their livestock and their goods, which they had gained in the land of Canaan, and came into Egypt, Jacob and all his offspring with him, his sons and his sons' sons with him, his daughters and his sons' daughters. All his offspring he brought with him into Egypt. Now these are the names of the descendants of Israel who came into Egypt, Jacob and his sons, and now we're going to get into some names, so hang in there and forgive me as I mispronounce them. All right, here we go. Now these are the names of the descendants of Israel who came into Egypt, Jacob and his sons, Reuben, Jacob's firstborn, and, and the sons of Reuben, Hanak, Palu, Hezron, and Carmi, the sons of Simeon, Jemuel, Jamin, Ohad, Jachin, and, and Zohar, and Shaul, the son of a Canaanite woman, the sons of Levi, Gershon, Kohath, and Merari. The sons of Judah, Ur, Onan, Shelah, Perez, and Zerah. But Ur and Onan died in the land of Canaan, so they're not going with. They're dead. And the sons of Perez were Hezron and Hamul. The sons of Issachar, Tola, Puva, Job, and Shimron. The sons of Zebulun, Sered, Elon, and Jalil. These are the sons of Leah, whom she bore to Jacob in Padan Aram, together with his, his daughter Dinah. Altogether, his sons and his daughters numbered 33. The sons of Gad, Ziphion, Haggai, Shuni, Esbon, Eri, Arodi, and Areli. 
the sons of Asher, Imna, Ishva, Ishvi, Berah, with Serah, their sister. And the sons of Beriah, Haber, and Machiel. These are the sons of Zilpah, who Laban gave to Leah, his daughter, and these she bore to Jacob. Sixteen persons. The sons of Rachel, Jacob's wife, Joseph and Benjamin. And to Joseph, in the land of Egypt, were born Manasseh and Ephraim from Asenath. The daughter of Potipharah, the priest of On, bore him. The sons of Benjamin, Bela, Baker, Ashbel, Jerah, Naaman, Eli, Rosh, Muppin, Huppin, and Ard. These are the sons of Rachel who were born to Jacob, 14 persons in all. The son of Dan, Husham. The sons of Naphtali, Jazeel, Guni, Jezer, and Shillem. These are the sons of Bilhah, whom Laban gave to Rachel his daughter, and she bore to Jacob seven persons in all. All the persons belonging to Jacob who came into Egypt, who were his own descendants, not including Jacob's sons' wives, were sixty-six persons in all. And the sons of Joseph who were born to him in Egypt were two. All the persons of the house of Jacob who came into Egypt were seventy. He had sent Judah ahead of him to Joseph to show the way before him in Goshen, and they came into the land of Goshen. Then Joseph prepared his chariot and went up to meet Israel his father in Goshen. He presented himself to him and fell on his neck and wept on his neck a good while. And Israel said to Joseph, Now let me die, since I have seen your face and know that you are still alive. So we see this laboring that Moses has of making sure that we are very clear on who all went down into the land of Egypt. Nobody's left out. You can trace your family line back. From the time this was written, the original audience could trace their line back and go, yes, all of us went. Nobody was left behind. He listed all the names. Nobody was left out. And nobody is going to be divided from this family again. You think back in history, it was always Jake, it was, uh, it was Isaac, not Ishmael, right? Isaac will be part of the promised line, but Ishmael won't. Jacob will be part of the promised line. Esau won't. Now we've, eat, we've reached a new spot where, no, all of these family members are going to stay in the family. The, the nation of Israel is not going to be divided. It's going to be one whole nation. So this is a bit of a change here. Everybody's included. Everybody's included in this nation as they go down. Every one of these is now part of this. So this is a change. This is, this is laboring over these names to show that, yes, all of these are included in the covenant family. It's organized by wives. First is Leah and her servant Zilpah, and then Rachel and her servant Bilhah. So there's these four wives and their sons, and they're arranged in such a way to show kind of two family units here, Leah and her servant, Rachel and her servant. These 70 is, is, is used often in the Bible as a number of completion, meaning that the whole nation went. If you go back to Genesis chapter 10 and the table of nations, there's 70 nations. So I think there's a parallel here between the table of nations representing all of humanity. It's almost like God is now in the process of creating a new humanity. It's almost like there's one representative for each of the nations. They're meant to be a blessing to all nations. There's 70 of them that are going to go down. And there's also these 70 nations in Genesis chapter 10. I think this is a literary device to show that these people are going to be used by God to bless every nation of the earth. And there's a completeness to this family. There's a, there's a promise. There's a specialness to this family. And so we see this going on. There's a lot more detail we could go into there. Uh, Henry Morris calculated the initial group of five, which was Jacob and his four, five, four wives. That's where this thing started, right, a few chapters ago. 
Well, now it's grown to a clan of about 100 in about 50 years. They're at 70 now, but they're going to get to 100 here pretty soon. Plus a few wives of the sons not mentioned and grandchildren. This is a growth rate of about 6% each year. At this rate, if they spend 400 years in Exodus, they will be several million, which is exactly what they will be. This family will grow into a giant nation in Egypt. And so you can see already the trajectory is being set. The whole nation is moving down. It's just, a, it's just a large family at this point, but it's about to become a great nation. So now let's go to chapter 46, 31 through 47. Jacob blesses Pharaoh. Now here we have this interesting reversal. Joseph said to his brothers and his father's household, so we have that sweet reunion. I kind of skipped over that a little bit. We have the sweet reunion between Joseph and Jacob. And they fall on each other's necks and they kiss each other. And Israel says, now I'm ready to die. I've seen the face of my beloved son. I never thought I'd see him again. We have this sweet reunion. And then Joseph's like, okay, there's going to be a bit of a transition into Egypt. There's some things you need to know about this culture. There's some things that we need to position ourselves. There's some things we say and don't say. We're entering into a different realm. And Pharaoh has extended a lot of grace to this family already. But Joseph's pretty savvy. Watch what he says here. Joseph said to his brothers and to his father's household, I will go up and tell Pharaoh and will say to him, My brothers and my father's household who were in the land of Canaan have come to me. And the men are shepherds, for they have been keepers of livestock, and they have brought their flocks and their herds and all that they have. When Pharaoh calls you and says, What is your occupation? You shall say, Your servants have been keepers of livestock from our youth even until now, both we and our fathers, in order that you may dwell in the land of Goshen, for every shepherd is an abomination to the Egyptians." So this is fascinating. The Egyptians don't like shepherds. They have sort of a prejudice against them. He's like, well, we need to be upfront about this, but this is actually going to work out good because what's going to happen is that he's already offered us the best of the land, and the best of the land is really good for livestock. So there is sort of this hole <laughs> in Egyptian culture where we can flourish in the best of the land because of their prejudices. They have an underutilized area of Goshen because they don't like shepherding that we could go and be vibrant shepherds. So we're going to position ourselves in such a way to go ahead and be honest with him, but we're going to end up being positioned in this place where we'll be left alone. We won't have to worship their false gods. We won't be tempted to intermarry with them. They will, in some sense, allow us to be us, and they can be them, and we'll flourish there. And so Joseph knows this. He knows sort of the loopholes in the culture and how to approach this. And he's teeing up his family to go, hey, as we are about to go in, we have Pharaoh's, we're on Pharaoh's good side here, and we're going to be honest and straightforward, but we're going to play this thing in such a way that we can preserve our family, we can preserve our faith, we can preserve our lineage, and dwell well here in a foreign land. It's just fantastically arranged by Joseph just knowing savvy how to navigate the world, cultures and prejudices. He knows how to do this in such a way to, uh, to not create unnecessary offense, but also be really honest as well. So chapter 47, verse 1. So Joseph went in and told Pharaoh, My father and my brothers with their flocks and herds and all that they possess have come from the land of Canaan. They are now in the land of Goshen, which is really where they want to be. And from among his brothers, he took five men and presented them to Pharaoh. So he just picks five of his brothers, maybe the five that maybe don't make fools of themselves. <laughs> I don't know. It's interesting. He just picks five, doesn't want to overwhelm Pharaoh. Maybe he's picked the five that sort of best represent the family. 
And from among his brothers took five men and presented them to Pharaoh. Verse 3, Pharaoh said to his brothers, what is your occupation? And they said to Pharaoh, your, your servants are shepherds as our fathers were. They said to Pharaoh, we have come to sojourn in the land, for there is no pasture for your servants' flocks, for the famine is severe in the land of Canaan. And now, please let your servants dwell in the land of Goshen. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, your father and your brothers have come to you. The land of Egypt is before you. Settle your father and your brothers in the best of the land. Let them settle in the land of Goshen. And if you know of any able men among them, put them in charge of my livestock. I don't want my people having to do shepherding. (laughs) So we'll outsource that to you. That's just how much they don't like shepherding. Then Joseph's Joseph brought in Jacob, his father, and stood before Pharaoh, and Jacob blessed Pharaoh. Now, that's not what you would expect. And Pharaoh said to Jacob, how many are the days of your life? And Jacob said to Pharaoh, the days of the years of my sojourning are 130 years. Few and evil have been the days of the years of my life, and they have not attained to the days of the years of my life of my fathers in their days of their sojourning. And Jacob blessed Pharaoh and went out from the presence of Pharaoh." So it's fascinating here when you think Joseph, when he describes his life, he describes it as a pilgrimage. He realizes that he's not home yet. While he's been in, in the land of Canaan for a while, he still knows that there's promises of God that have not yet been fulfilled yet. He's still a pilgrim, and he identifies himself as such. His real home is still yet to come. Which, so, so he understands where he is in relation to the promises, that they're not yet realized yet, that he's still having to put his faith in a promise And he expresses that to Pharaoh. Goshen is excellent. We already talked about Goshen. Um, Jacob blesses Pharaoh twice. Now, here's what happens is that it's the greater that blesses the lesser. That's almost always what happens is the greater blesses the lesser. And here's what's happening. The leader of the world, Pharaoh, and this lowly, nobody knows who they are, old man shepherd, they come into the same room together. And guess what happens? Jacob is the greater. Because he's the carrier of the promise of God. He's the greater, so he blesses Pharaoh. So here we have this fun interplay where uh, God told Abraham, whoever blesses you, I will bless. Well, Pharaoh had just blessed the people of Israel by moving them down. And so God is keeping his promise through Jacob by now, I will bless those who bless you and I will curse those who curse you. Well, now God is blessing Pharaoh through Jacob. A fulfillment of that promise is coming. And there seems to be this acknowledgement, this reverence even Pharaoh has of Jacob, which is a fascinating thing, that it's Jacob that blesses Pharaoh because Pharaoh has been a blessing to the people. It's a fascinating thing here uh, that he would bless him. Now, Egyptian, according to Egyptian culture, the perfect age is 110. Like, that's the perfect age to die at. Like, that's the fullness of life. That's a full life. So I think there's a little bit of awe in Pharaoh that he's like, how old are you? exactly. He's 130. And he comes from a family of people that live much longer than that. That's why Jacob says, my life, my years have been short because my grandpa lived to be 175. My dad lived to be 180. I'm looking like I'm at the end here at 130. My days have been short and hard. And Pharaoh seems to be a bit in awe of this. In the next chapter, we're going to see that Joseph, in a couple chapters, Joseph's going to die at the age of 110 which is like the perfect Egyptian age to, to die. So now you've got someone who's actually exceeded 110 by quite a ways, and that seems to have caused Pharaoh to have awe of like, wow, I'm, I'm in the presence of people who have crazy long lives here. I need to be blessed by you because I want long life. 
chapter 47. So, so, so we just have this, 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 this really interesting, this really interesting that it's Jacob and the family of faith is greater than the political power of Egypt. To possess the promise of God, to possess the favor of God, to possess the presence of God is greater than ruling the world, than any worldly power. And we see that actually modeled in these two guys right here. Family riches, chapter 47. Thanks for hanging in there. We're in the home stretch here. Chapter 47, verses 11 through 31, family riches. So we've come back down, right? Family reconciliation. Pharaoh blesses Joseph. Family's relocated. Jacob blesses Pharaoh. That's sort of a fulfillment of a promise. And now we're going to see how this family starts. What does their initial start in the land look like? To get that, we have to understand a little bit of how Egypt itself goes. Because now, now it's almost like Israel is incubating inside of Egypt as a whole. So now knowing what's happening in Egypt as a whole is a really important contrast and understanding of what's going on with Israel, okay? We're getting to the end of the book now where we're setting in the stage for the Exodus story that's going to begin next. So we're really starting to wrap this Genesis story up. And here's what happens. The people are relocated. They're now in Goshen. They're settled. They've got their houses built. They've put new flooring down. I'm not quite done with that myself. And they're, uh, they're, they're getting settled in. So what's happening in Israel, or uh, what's happening in Egypt all around them? Verse 11, Then Joseph settled his father and his brothers and gave them possession of the land of Egypt in the best of the land, in the land of Ramesses, as Pharaoh had commanded. And Joseph provided his father, his brothers, and all his household with food according to the number of their descendants. Now there was no food in all the land, for the famine was very severe, so that the land of Egypt and the land of Canaan languished by reason of the famine. And Joseph gathered up all the money that was found in the land of Egypt and in the land of Canaan in exchange for grain that they bought. And Joseph brought the money into Pharaoh's house. And when the money was all spent in the land of Egypt and in the land of, of Canaan, all the Egyptians came to Joseph and said, give us food. So now the famine's actually starting to hit the, hit the Egyptians now. It's starting, they're really starting to feel it now. Why should we die before your eyes for our money is gone? So they've already traded all their money for food. And Joseph answered, give your livestock, and I will give you food in exchange for your livestock if your money is gone. So Joseph has a problem brought to him, and the people, well, if you don't have money, then, then trade your livestock for food. A very gracious response for Joseph to, give, um, to give, uh, give them another option so that they don't starve to death. Verse 17, so they brought their livestock to Joseph, and Joseph gave them food in exchange for their horses, the flocks, the herds, and the donkeys. He supplied them with food in exchange for all their livestock that year. And then that year was ended. They came back to him the following year and said to him, We will not hide from my Lord that our money is all spent. The herds of livestock are my Lord's. There is nothing left in the sight of my Lord but our bodies and our land. Why should we die before your eyes, both we and our land, by us and our land for food? And we with our land will be servants to Pharaoh." And give us seed so that we may live and not die, and that the land may not be so des desolate. So actually the people come to Joseph and say, could we become slaves? Could, could we come? Like, we're out of food. All we have left is ourselves and our land. Could we trade that in order that our families might not die? And so Joseph takes them up on it. Verse 20, so Joseph bought all the land of Egypt for Pharaoh. So now Pharaoh owns everything. And all the Egyptians sold their fields because the famine was severe on them. The land became Pharaoh's. As for the people, he made servants of them from one end of Egypt to the other. 
Only the land of the priests he did not buy, for the priests had a fixed allowance from Pharaoh and lived on the allowance that Pharaoh gave them. Therefore they did not sell their land. Then Joseph said to the people, Behold, I have this day bought you and your land for Pharaoh. Now here is seed for you, and you shall sow the land. And at the harvest you shall give a fifth to Pharaoh, and four-fifths shall be your own as seed for the field and as food for yourselves and your households and as food for your little ones. So he's going to lease it back to them in a sense, right? And they get to keep 80%. Just pay 20%. That's actually not a bad deal. Verse 25, and they said, you have saved our lives. May it please my Lord, we will be servants of Pharaoh. So, Pharaoh, so Joseph made it a statute concerning the land of Egypt, and it stands to this day that Pharaoh should have, have the fifth. The land of the priests alone did not become Pharaoh's. Thus Israel settled in the land of Egypt, in the land of Goshen, and they gained possessions in it and were fruitful and multiplied greatly. So the people of Israel are starting to really flourish. That's going to be a key uh, a key thing when we get into Exodus is that you'll see that that begins to scare the people, the fact that they're being so prosperous. And now um, you can see that the nation of Egypt is fairly impoverished, and now Pharaoh is almost like he owns everything now, right? So this is how you get the setup for Exodus. How is it that Pharaoh is so powerful in Exodus when he seems to have a lot of delegation, well, here you go. Here's part of how that happens is, is that's how this happens here. And it's, it's the people, the people that are asking to be subjugated here. And they're praising Joseph for it. So this is not Joseph pulling a fast one, but you're beginning to see the table set. That slavery is now a thing, that the power of Pharaoh is now a thing, and that's going to end up getting turned on Israel. Jacob lived in the land of Egypt 17 years. So while Jacob has thought he's going to die for quite some time, right? He gets 17 years. He gets to live through the famine, and then he gets another 12 or so years of living in the land of Egypt. And so the days of Jacob, the years of his life, were 147. Just mind-blowing to the Egyptians, mind-blowing to us, of how old and blessed by, by God this man is. And when the time drew near that Israel must die, he called his son Joseph and said to him, If now I have found favor in your sight... Put your hand under my thigh and promise to deal kindly and truly with me. Do not bury me in Egypt, but let me lie with my fathers. Carry me out of Egypt and bury me in their burying place. He answered, I will do as you have said. And he said, Swear to me. And he swore to him. Then Israel bowed himself upon the head of his bed. So while they're flourishing in Egypt, there's still this reminder that this is not our home. This is not where we belong. And Jacob knows that. Jacob knows, I need you to make a long road trip to bury me with my fathers because I don't want my life to be anchored and identified with Egypt. God has sent us here, but his promises are in the land of Canaan. So here we go. Here's what one commentator said. Through Joseph's wisdom, God preserved Israel and Goshen, both physically by providing food and land and spiritually by providing for them an isolated place from the pagan Egyptians until the Exodus. Under Jacob's blessing on Pharaoh and Pharaoh's honoring of Israel, everyone prospered. Pharaoh gained control of all the property and people in Egypt. The Egyptians hailed Joseph as a savior, and Israel prof prospered even more than the Egyptians. This mutual blessing and prosperity contrasts with the situation 400 years later when another Pharaoh will curse Israel and he himself will end up being cursed by God. And so here we go. Now the table is set. 
these last few chapters that we're going to have in the next couple weeks are really going to be a rounding out of what the future is going to look like for this nation. But we have now moved to where Genesis will leave us with Israel in Egypt, flourishing and blessing in this foreign land. Joseph has brought great blessing, great power, great influence to everything he touches. And while Egypt is languishing, Israel is thriving, and they will grow in Goshen. So we're going to pause it there. Let me give just a few takeaways as we leave. There's a few things that you can take away from this text. One is just, just to behold the sovereign hand of God in all things. That goes back to that was Joseph's understanding of everything that he went through, that he and his family went through, was that God was at work in all of it. One person put it this way, how wonderfully these two things meet in practical harmony, the free will of man and the predestination of God. Man acts just as freely and just as guiltily as if there were no predestination. However, God ordains, arranges, supervises, and overrules as if there were no free will in the universe. And both are true. Both are true. Man's decisions may rule, but God overrules. God reigns and he rules. And we see that same thing happen when the same almost the same thing happens at the at the uh, at the moment of Pentecost when the Spirit comes down and Peter begins to preach a sermon, and he's talking about this whole thing, this whole thing about Jesus coming and being the fulfillment of all of these promises. Men of Israel, here's what it says: Acts two twenty two. Men of Israel, hear these words: Jesus of Nazareth. A man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. But God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Which sounds like Joseph, right? You sold me into slavery, but no, God sent me. You killed Jesus? No, God predestined it. Both are true. Both are true, and one overrules the other. Spurgeon also says this, Man was the second agent in Christ's death, but God was the first worker. For he was delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God. Man did it to destroy righteousness, but God did it to save the ungodly. Man had committed a crime, but God had triumphed. Man rules, but God overrules. So even the most wicked event in human history was planned by God to be turned for the salvation of mankind. Joseph shows us a little foreshadowing of that. I was sent by God, and you sinned in sending me here. So behold, just the sovereign hand of God in all things, his sovereign hand in moving the heart of Pharaoh, his sovereign hand in dreams, in decisions, in, in things like what happened with Judah and Tamar, like God is sovereignly working all of these things. And if that's true in this story, it's true in your life too. God is sovereignly working every single thing in your life for his glory and for your good. Forgiveness and reconciliation are viral or are intended to be viral. Forgiveness and reconciliation are chain reactions. The first domino is always God's providence. This confidence that God extends forgiveness. And if you've received forgiveness, then you're to give it away. He tells his brothers, don't quarrel on the way, right? You've received forgiveness and mercy from me. Now extend forgiveness and mercy to each other, right? And so we get this forgiveness and reconciliation multiplies as it goes. If you've received it, then you give it away. And Joseph seems to at some point received reconciliation with God, and now he can give it away. 
He doesn't have to hold grudges, doesn't have to get vengeance, doesn't have to seek justice on his own. He can forgive and reconcile, and that's meant to be a chain reaction. Upon our confession and repentance, the Lord Jesus Christ moves powerfully towards us, showing us that God has been at work to bring, himself to, uh, bring us to himself all along. Both sinners and sins can be transformed into trophies and testimonies of God's sovereign grace. God works these things for good. And we have the privilege of living and telling this story over and over to others. That God will take the trials and the blessings. That he will take them and he will turn them. If you will come for reconciliation, relocation, riches in Christ. These three things that we've looked at. Those who bless you will be blessed. And so we get to live in this story through Christ, through putting our faith in Him. And then lastly, God's people are perfectly positioned for God's purposes according to God's promises. Back in Genesis 15, God told Abraham, this was, this was 100 years before. Here's what God said to Abraham in Genesis 15. As God was making a covenant, remember they cut the animals in half, they had to walk through the blood. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram. And behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried at a good old age, and they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. So <laughs> this whole thing was planned a hundred years before when God told Abraham, hey, the land of Canaan is going to be yours, but we're going to take a 400-year detour. Well, now we're seeing that come to fruition. God had planned this. God had planned all of the details of this, and he is perfectly positioning his plan for his purposes according to his promises. And if that's true of the nation of Israel, that's true for you. God has you exactly where he intends for you to be to serve his purposes and to live according to his promises. So maybe your life is not turning out like you thought. Maybe some things have happened to you, but you have a big sovereign God who has the ability to turn those things if you'll trust in him, if you'll put your trust in him. And all of this is true because of what Christ has done. Christ has come into this world, died on the cross for us, and rose again so that when we come to him in faith, we are forgiven of our sins and we're brought into the hope that we ourselves are God's people, that we ourselves are perfectly positioned for God's purposes, according to God's promises. It's modeled here, and it can be your experience through faith in Jesus Christ. Let's pray. God, thank you for this time together. Thank you for these words of Scripture. So many things to track here, and so many things we could have double-clicked on and didn't. Uh, but God, we trust that, um, that you are working in our hearts, and I hope that ultimately, God, we look to Christ in faith. We see that while we're just in one small little part of this chapter, it is driving forward with greater intensity all of the time to its fulfillment in Christ. When you came in, in the flesh, you died on the cross, you rose again, that we might have eternal life and we might enter into these promises given so long ago. So God, help us to trust in your promises, help us to trust in your ways, help us to see even the hard and... Thank you for listening to the Redeeming Grace Church podcast. For more information about our church, go to rgcrc.org.